Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this is another bonus episode made possible by the generosity of my patrons over on patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Before we get started on what I think might be the stupidest episode I've ever attempted, I need to thank a new patron who has been kind enough to put their hand in their pocket to support my nonsense. Stuart Moses, thanks so much for your support. Your financial backing helps make these bonus episodes possible, and you've also helped to fund a brand new podcast starting this month, Popular Antiquarian, in which I look at all the wonderful media produced before the year 2000. In addition to my gratitude, all patrons get a parcel of gaming material, and I'm currently deep in the trenches of writing a brand new game book, which should be out later in the year, so there's never been a better time to give money to a strange man from the internet. This episode, we're looking at Dice Man, an ill-conceived attempt to try and combine the appeal of legendary British comic 2000 AD with the 1980s boom in adventure game books. It ran for a mere five issues before being cancelled, presumably because it was destroying the sanity of everyone involved. The only thing stranger than trying to mash up comics and game books is trying to do a playthrough of a game book presented as a comic in an audio-only format. Nevertheless, this is the challenge that I've set myself because Dice Man has recently been reprinted in its entirety by Rebellion, the current owners of 2000 AD, making this bizarre historical curio available in its original form for the very first time, and in a nicely produced hardcover book to boot. It really is a lovely item just on an aesthetic level, so even if the playthrough winds up being a bust, hopefully I'll be able to say some interesting things about it in the review which follows. It's possible, though unlikely, that some people listening might not be aware of 2000 AD, the self-styled Galaxy's Greatest Comic. This is a British anthology comic which has been through a number of different owners over the years, and is currently published by Rebellion, who are the software studio responsible for the Sniper Elite and Zombie Army games, amongst others. We've come across Rebellion's CEO Jason Kingsley on the podcast before, since he wrote the surprisingly good He-Man adventure gamebook He-Man and the Memory Stone. It's a small world of eccentric nerds, it really is. 2000 AD is great. It's the only comic I read every week because there's just nothing else quite like it. Each weekly issue is 30 pages long and features five different stories, each around six pages long. Some of which might be complete narratives, but the majority of which will be episodes from an ongoing story. Although best known for Judge Dredd, the fascist lawman of the future, the comic has a diverse range of characters in a variety of genres, united by an underlying satirical tone and focus on action as the defining storytelling device. Many of the greatest British comic writers of all time have done stints on 2000 AD, including Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Garth Ennis and Dan Abnett. It's also played host to some of the very finest artists in the world including the likes of Charlie Adlard, Steve Dillon, Dave Gibbons and Kevin O'Neill. It's a unique institution in the world of comics, and while 2000 AD is as vulnerable to sticking to their established formula as any other comic publisher, they continue to generate new series at a rate of knots, adding to their deep roster of evergreen heroes and heroines with new ongoing narratives. When I think about 2000 AD, I'm often reminded of John Peel's description of seminal post-punk band The Fall. It's always different, 
it's always the same. Dice Man, as a spin-off of 2000 AD, was the brainchild of Pat Mills, one of British comics' brightest and best writers. Mills had been instrumental in setting up 2000 AD and acted as its first editor, but it's as a writer he truly shines. He never really managed to crack America, but he was instrumental in creating many of 2000 AD's most timeless characters. His work is characterised by humour, violence and a strong distrust of authority. He's the perfect writer for 2000 AD, with a natural ability to cram ideas into the short episodes so that they seem to be overflowing from almost every panel. Like many of my favourite writers, he doesn't see doing hack work as an excuse to turn in shoddy work. He elevates almost anything he touches, and even in his 70s, his anger and distaste for authority shine through in almost everything he touches. He acted as editor for Diceman and wrote the bulk of the stories which appeared in the five issues. The characters featured in Diceman will be familiar to anyone with a passing knowledge of the comic. Alongside the future lawman Judge Dredd, there's a selection of stories featuring Slornia, the Celtic barbarian character, Rogue Trooper, the genetic infantryman who fights a personal war on a planet rendered almost uninhabitable by decades of science fiction combat, Nemesis the Warlock, an alien black magician and embodiment of chaos, the titular Dice Man who was created especially for this comic, and even former US president and indifferent actor Ronald Reagan. We're going to start on issue one and try and cover a couple of the stories. I'll talk about the rules as we come across them. I think they're fairly simple from what I can tell. I'll do my best to make things flow without getting too bogged down in panel descriptions. I don't think I'm going to be able to do more than provide a flavour of what it's like, but hopefully that'll be enough to help you get a sense of the thing. This really is a very stupid idea. So the first story is Judge Dread: House of Death. And the game is by Pat Mills. The story is by John Wagner and Alan Grant. The art is by Brian Talbot and the letters are by Tom Frame. Judge Dredd is a fascinating character, a fascist lawman in a not too distant future world where almost the entirety of America is covered by a couple of megacities in which the population are mostly bored and up to no good and all justice is handed out by the all-powerful judges who are both judge jury and executioner on occasion judge dread is a sort of dirty harry writ large-esque figure a man with a permanent scowl and a uh, protruding jaw who dispenses justice from the barrel of his futuristic lawgiver pistol we've got a nice opening splash page which shows judge dread pointing his gun at the camera and a very nicely rendered depiction of what you might call an old-school haunted house. More than a hint of the Adams family about it, it's clearly in a state of some decay. So let's have a look at the rules. You are Judge Dredd, the famous lawman of Mega City One, giant metropolis of the 22nd century. You have heard rumours of an illegal cult operating from Croglin Mansion, a long-abandoned house near the city waterfront. The Brotherhood of Baal are known to revel in torture and bloodshed and may be linked to the disappearance of several hundred citizens. Your assignment is to find out what they're doing in Croglin Mansion. You have with you your Lawmaster police bike, which is pretty much what it sounds like, and your Lawgiver gun, which fires six kinds of bullets. Standard execution, rubber ricochet, 
incendiary, high-explosive, armor-piercing, and heat-seekers. The object is to overcome the creatures that are lying in wait for you, keeping your energy rating as high as possible. Every time you're hit, you lose energy. So our energy is determined by rolling one die and adding 40 to the result. I roll a 4, giving me a total energy score of 44. Whenever you see the skull symbol in the text, you are under attack, and you roll two dice for the creature. If it's equal to or higher than the number beside the skull, you have been hit. Then you roll the number of dice indicated for damage and deduct this from your energy rating. If your energy rating is reduced to zero, you are dead. There's only one combat round per picture. You cannot kill most of the creatures that live in Kroglin Mansion, so the same combat principles do not apply to them. You are now ready to deal with whatever terrors are inside the house. You are the law, and they'd better believe it. So it's a nice simple system. Uh, there's actually some elements I really like. I think having only a single stat is a very sensible idea, given that this is already a very cramped way of telling stories. I quite like the idea of each combat taking energy off you and then being done. You could write a really good game book with this basic system, I think. It kind of it brings role-playing combat systems down to their simplest essence, I guess, in that when you fight something in fighting fantasy, ultimately the penalty is losing some stamina and then just getting on with the adventure. And this manages to find a way of doing that entire fight in a single role, uh, which is is neat and is something I might borrow for a future gamebook project. So panel one shows Judge Dredd on his motorbike tearing through the streets. In the background, you can see an excited child waving and saying, Mom, it's Judge Dredd. And she replies, shh, son, or he'll book you for causing a disturbance. Which nicely highlights that the uh, the judges are hardcore law enforcement officers prepared to send people to the ISO cubes, which is the 2000 AD version of prison, for even the smallest theoretical infractions. You drive down Dock Street towards Kroglin Mansion. People look fearfully at you, then quickly turn away. But you know they have nothing to fear from you as long as they obey the law. For this is your city. These are your citizens. They may not be up to much, but you're sworn to protect them. We now get a dread's eye view as the bike rides through the streets and we see a man standing in the road saying, Evening, Your Honour. And Dredd coldly replies, Keep on the sidewalk, citizen. Panel 3 shows us the entrance to Kroglin Manor, with Dread casting a long dark shadow up the stairs that lead up to the forbidding doors. You park your lawmaster and survey the old mansion. The house is groaning and creaking with age. You notice the smell of damp and decay and something else. Evil. We close in on a shattered window and from inside comes an unearthly screaming. The scream of a soul in torment. You judge the situation. Will you smash through the front door on your motorbike? Have a look through the letterbox first or slip in through the cellar? Well, I think creeping in is going to be our best option. So let's try that. You slip in through the cellar. And we see a crouched Judge Dredd ready for action. His Lord Giver in his hand coming down the steps to see a terrible sight. Inside you discover many of the missing people 
dead, dread stands before a pile of tormented corpses. Hardened though you are to death, even you are shocked by the grim sight and you vow, someone's going to pay for this. We see Dread's shadow again as you ascend the stairs of the cellar towards a simple wooden door. The door creaks open. You open the door and head into the hall. We get three shots, each over the barrel of the lawgiver, as Dread makes his way cautiously through the corridors of the house. It's really communicating that Dread has his gun in hand and is ready to deploy it at a moment's notice. You see ahead of you the Brotherhood of Baal waiting in ambush for you by the front door. And indeed you can see the Brotherhood of Baal all facing away from you, all wearing robes with strange hoods and horned symbols. One of them kneels by the front door, gun in hand, peering through the letterbox. Will you arrest them? Will you leave them to a backup squad and go up the stairs or check out the rooms on the ground floor? I think we'll try and arrest them. Judge Dredd is nothing if not a street judge, and this is very much not something he would leave to underlings, I feel. Finding cover, you call out. Drop your weapons, you're under arrest. Judge Dredd, the hated one, kill him, cries one of the cultists wearing what appears to be a goat head on top of his head. We see the cultists whirl round, blades in their hand, their faces twisted with rage as they viciously attack us. So they need a 12 to hit and they do one die's worth of damage. So let's roll 2d6 and see what we get. Seven, which means they do no damage. You see their crazed eyes, the telltale red stain around their lips, and you know they are beyond redemption. You mow them down without mercy. Blam, 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 blam. Again and again the lawgiver sounds, and hooded robed figures collapse in attitudes of agony as the bullets tear through their body. They don't stand a chance. Dread grabs the lead cultist, the one wearing the goat head mask. Okay, good breath. What's the story? Spill it. Leave me alone, he quavers. Let me die in peace. You've got to get information out of him first. I said talk, punk. What do you want to know? Blood seeps from the corner of his mouth. He is clearly near to death. But you notice that he's wearing a gleaming key on a string around his neck. Do you say, tell me about any traps? What's that key around your neck? Or who's behind all this? Let's ask him about the key. What's that key around your neck? The key to the generator chest, but the master key to the generator itself is in the bathroom. Where, punk? Behind the shower curtain. He drops dead before he can tell you any more. You rip the key from around his neck and pocket it taking one last look at the twisted, hideous visage of the lead cultist. You head further into the house. Should you go up the stairs or check out the rooms on the ground floor first? We can see, again, over Judge Dredd's pistol, a corridor with a couple of doors leading off from either side, and ahead, a rickety old staircase with what looks like a convex mirror hanging from the wall. 
Let's check out the rooms on the ground floor first. You approach an open door. You hear something dripping and a horrible moaning sound. Will you look inside or go up the stairs instead? Oh, I've got to look inside. What could be behind this sinister door? There's a lot of use of Judge Dredd's shadows to create tension and increase the amount of darkness in this. I really like that the comic frequently shows you what Judge Dredd is seeing. It feels surprisingly immersive. But at the same time, there's quite often bits where it'll pull back to give you a better angle on the action. And I think that's a really important thing as well, knowing when to use this viewpoint to create intimacy and when the story and the action is best served by pulling back so you can actually see everything that's going on. But yeah, we're going to look inside this door. This is a filthy bathroom. The toilet stands in one corner and it's lit by a old-fashioned oil lamp. You can see a ragged shower curtain encircling a grimy bath. Many of the tiles have fallen from the walls and there is a pervasive atmosphere of decay. Do you want to have a look in the bathroom cabinet or pull back the shower curtain or check out the WC? It's a bit coy. WC, that's a very old-fashioned term for a toilet. Uh, I think we've got to pull back the shower curtain. I've seen horror movies and I can see the hint of some kind of shape behind the shower curtain in the panel. You see Dredd's hand reach out and tear back the shower curtain, his gun cocked and ready. You rip back the curtain and notice a key on the soap dish. There's a number on it. Make a note of it on your score sheet. The key is strange, almost eldritchly designed and has the number 29 written upon it. You pocket the key and then suddenly notice more slime. Slime seeping through the tiles like a black tide and creeping slowly down the walls. The wall bulges towards you and the moaning starts again. There is the nauseating smell of decay. The wall starts to burst open, shattering the tiles, showering you in shards of porcelain. A hideous figure engulfs your vision, clad in the twisted raiments of a street judge. But this is no street judge. Instead of a human face, there is a bare, grinning animal skull. Long talons stretch out to try and grasp you. This undead monstrosity is Judge Mortis, one of the four dark judges, and his fetid touch brings decay to all. Dread! Hisses the hideous undead judge. You open fire a blizzard of rounds, tearing through the creature's body, but still it comes forward. Standard execution rounds aren't stopping him. You must die, hisses Judge Mortis. You have seen this being's power before. You know you dare not let him touch you. Judge Mortis attacks. He's got a to hit of eight plus, and he does two dice of damage. Seven. Excellent. He misses. I think if I was going to adapt this system, I'd have them do damage even if they don't roll over there to hit score, but I have them do much less damage than they would if they rolled over there to hit score. 
a bit like the sanity mechanic in Call of Cthulhu, where creatures will do some damage to your sanity, regardless of whether or not you make your sanity roll. You leap back close up on Dread, changing the dial on his lawgiver. High explosive! Dread yells. It's one of the um, slightly peculiar quirks of Judge Dread comics that judges feel the need to announce exactly what round they're using at all times. It does make the action much easier to parse, but it does kind of remind me of what we do in the shadows where Matt Berry's character shouts the word bat every time he turns into a bat. High explosive! yells Dread. Kaboom! The report of the lawgiver is vastly louder than it was before. An incandescent explosion engulfs Judge Mortis, but still he comes on. Dread fires again and again, pulverising the undead creature's body until only ash and bone remains. Judge Mortis's spirit, a hideous transparent skull, rises from his shattered bones. You have defeated me, Dread, but you cannot kill what does not live. You will never leave this house alive! With a peal of deranged laughter, the spirit vanishes from the scene. Now you know who the masters are, for Mortis is one of the dark judges from another dimension where life itself is a crime. And if Mortis is here, what of the others? The impressive staircase leads to the upper floors, and we can see the staircase over Dred's shoulder. There is indeed a large cracked mirror at the centre, and the staircase divides in two, like a lot of really fancy staircases do, only to then reunite on the first floor. Don't know what it is about posh people deciding that they need the option to take two slightly different routes when they're traversing between floors of their palatial houses but uh, it is definitely a thing that posh people think you want to take the left staircase or the right staircase i'm assuming one of them is trapped so we'll take the left because we always go left when that is an option cautiously you start to climb close up your foot catches a tripwire the stairs are booby-trapped a huge razor-sharp blade comes scything out from a hidden panel by the side of the stair. It's got a six plus to hit, and it does two dice worth of damage. Seven, it's hit, dealing oh, a measly three points of damage. Energy now 41. Having survived the blade, you limp further up the stairs. You reach the landing, and a shadowy figure emerges from the library. And we can see behind thick, mould-encrusted drapes the shadow of a figure who also appears to be dressed somewhat like a judge. This one with a black helmet with sinister bat wings sticking out from each side. This is Judge Fear. Close up as Fear opens the grill of his black forbidding mask. Gaze into the face of fear, he intones. Inside the mask, instead of a face, 
are a profusion of mad staring eyes set in bubbling in human flesh. Judge Fear can change his appearance. His hideous visage can terrify a man to death. So it's a, an eight plus in order to try and do two dice worth of damage. So again, no mean opponent. No, uh, a two means that we are utterly unmoved by a man who, to be fair, might as well just be showing us a jar full of novelty sweets. Judge Fear's visage might terrify a man to death, but you are no normal man. You strike back close up of Judge Dread, headbutting the ever-loving snot out of Judge Fear. There's a lovely panel depicting his helmeted face colliding with Judge Fear's helmet with a beautiful bock sound effect. No thanks, intones Dread. Not content with headbutting one of the Lords of Death, Judge Dread's foot lashes out, catching Judge Fear in the chest and sending him careering down the steps to where his foot catches the hidden tripwire. Once again, the razor-sharp blade slices out. There's a beautiful slice sound effect. In a moment, the vicious blade severs through his neck, sending his black helmet bouncing down the stairs to the bottom, where his spirit too emerges from the wreckage. Curse you, dread, he intones as his spirit dissipates. Two drudges down, that's not that bad. There are four. As you go up the next flight of stairs, you hear the thrum of a generator. Of course, Dread thinks. If the Brotherhood of Baal brought the Dark Judges here, they must have a dimension warp. Follow the sound and see a nightmare figure, the loose shape of a human clutching a trident and wreathed in sheets of shimmering flame. This is Judge Fire. Such is his fiery heat, even your high X shells detonate before they reach him, and we get a close-up of shells detonating as the impassive face, the skeletal face of Judge Fire, looks impassively on. Then he strikes, reaching out a coruscating flash of flame, leaps from the tip of his trident to strike Judge Dredd's hand where he's holding his lawgiver. He's hit, dealing one die worth of damage. Three, reducing our energy to 38. Fire attacks again. Justice comes to all. Burn, Dread, Burn! The skeletal figure reaches out, fingers outstretched from his touch, yet more flames leap from his fingers to engulf Judge Dredd's arm. We see him staring in horror as his armour and uniform catch fire. Roll to hit again, this time at a ten. Six, that's a miss. Charred and smoking Judge Dredd gives ground before the inhuman judge. You have only one slim chance. As Judge Fire approaches, you aim at the chandelier that hangs above the scene. Blam! Roll one die for accuracy. So, anything but a one needed here. You get a two. With a crack, your lawgiver round shatters the chain holding the chandelier up and brings it down on Judge Fire. 
There is a horrendous crash as the chandelier shatters atop its target, raining him in splinters of razor-sharp glass. But somehow, the skeletal figure of Judge Fire emerges from the wreckage. Curse you! I am not finished yet! Your ploy has merely delayed him, but you have no time to waste dealing with him, even if you could. Your gun is now twisted and useless. Judge Dredd turns and flees from the scene, his smouldering lawgiver cast aside on the ground beside him. You hurry towards the sounds of the generator down a long, dark corridor. The cult must have honed in on the dark judge's death auras, then brought them back. And you realise that they can just as easily be returned to their endless limbo if you can find the generator. It must be in here. You open the door and reveal inside a suitcase filled with strange-looking technological equipment and a keypad. This is the dimension generator. To switch it on, you will need the master key. And you will need to turn to the number on it where we do have the master key. So... We can do that. You insert the master key. Let's see. Should be able to reverse their coordinates. But you are interrupted. The last of the dark judges appears in the corner of the room. This is Judge Death. Leader of the dark judges. He is perhaps the most human looking of the dark judges. Taking the form of a permanently grinning corpse appallingly thin and rotting, clad in black skin-tight leather with a distorted version of a judge's helmet covering his eyes. A bat-winged shoulder pad sits on one shoulder and his badge is a human skull with the word death emblazoned upon it. He is the most feared of the four judges. He attacks you. Now this one is the most dangerous of all, so he needs a 10 to hit, but... If he does hit, he does special damage. So I rolled a six. That's already not good. And a three, a nine. Uh, judge's touch brings death to all the living, as summarised by his famous catchphrase, the crime is life, the sentence is death. Judge Dredd approaches, surrounded by... The spectral figures of his underlings now reduced to mere shades. He must not use the warp, cries Judge Mortis. Kill him, intones Judge Fear. You desperately return to the controls and the generator hums into life. But then, as Judge Death closes in from one side, the door springs open and Judge Fire appears hurling his trident viciously towards dread cease he cries the trident impales judge dread in his arm you've been hit one die worth of damage three taking judge dread down to 35 energy desperately you try and free yourself come on damn it dread mutters through gritted teeth he grabs onto the flaming trident embedded in his arm and pulls, ignoring the pain in his other hand, his whole body now wreathed in flame. Behind you, you sense your doom approaching. 
judge death leans in close you have thwarted us once too often now you too must be judged with a herculean effort judge dread pulls the flaming trident from his arm and spins to face the leader of the dark judges the fiery heat of the trident burns through your gauntlet but you grit your teeth and thrust it deep into death's black heart not your filthy law death but my law the law of justice judge death's face contorts in an agonized scream as the flaming trident penetrates to the very core of his being the hum becomes a deafening whine as the machine comes on stream a huge swirling vortex takes shape in the corner of the room and one by one the dark judges sucked into it vanishing like flotsam down a plug hole judge death is the last to be sucked into the portal with one despairing scream curse him he has beaten us again then the four dark judges are swept back into the empty dimension from whence they came you have won you have beaten mankind's greatest enemies this time they can stay there snarls judge dread and smashes the machine into a thousand pieces making it impossible to be reconstituted by other cultists a backup squad arrives and destroys the generator for good you're in a bad way covered in injuries and really very badly singed by judge fire's attacks but you refuse offers of help and stagger down the stairs unaided Kroglin mansion is evil i want it burned understand but but judge dread it's a grade one listed building says one of the street judges who's come to relieve judge dread it's designed by the famous architect sir montague hall i said burn it burn it to the ground snarls judge dread grabbing the unfortunate street judge by the lapel very well judge he says unwilling to tangle any further with this legendary figure of wrath you stride out into the cool clean air this property is condemned but deep in the dimension limbo judge death and the other dark judges still remain you too are condemned dread and i promise you some day somehow i shall return to carry out the sentence of death as Kroglin mansion burns to the ground at judge dread's order the smoke pouring from the edifice forms itself into the unholy features of judge death the end so I don't think I'm going to do another one because that was actually surprisingly hard work. I really enjoyed that in the end and I'm looking forward to reading the rest of Dice Man off Mike. It's arguably a somewhat misguided project but given the difficulties of trying to do a comic that's also a game book I think it actually comes off as well as can be expected. There's not that many choices which I'm kind of fine with. It's only a short story but there is a lot going on and the choices you do make feel impactful and there's plenty of opportunities to roll dice to influence the outcome of events as well which i like the packs in perhaps traditional pat mill style a great deal 
into its relatively short page count. The artwork is great as well. Brian Talbot, really good artist, doing a fantastic job here. I'm sure I'll be talking about that more in my closing remarks. Uh, very difficult to try and come up with panel descriptions on the fly. If I had my time again, maybe I'd actually write a few notes, make it a little bit easier for myself. But hey, is what it is. I did the best I could and hopefully it wasn't too tedious for you. I'm going to go away and play through some more of Dice Man. Then I'll be back for some closing remarks. Tatty bye. I had a great time with Dice Man, a much better time than I was actually expecting. Doing a crossover between game books and comics feels like a gimmick, and it feels like one that was probably doomed to failure. And in a sense, fail it did. The comic only ran for four issues after all. But I think there's actually a surprising amount of fun to be found among the pages of Dice Man. The actual recording for this episode was very tough. It's really hard doing the panel descriptions. It's like running a role-playing game, except without the downtime where the players bicker amongst themselves about which one of them is going to pull the very suspicious lever, or the time they spend trying to argue that they always have their sword drawn unless they've specifically stated otherwise, and therefore the goblins shouldn't get a surprise attack while they ready themselves. That's not a problem with Dice Man itself, more of a problem with me, so it doesn't factor into my assessment, but I would strongly suggest no one else tries to record themselves reading a comic. I've tried. It's a nightmare. The second thing I need to point out is that I haven't actually played through the whole of Dice Man before writing my review. Partly that's because of time pressures. I need to get this episode out in a timely fashion. And it's also because I've been having a sufficiently nice time that I want to be able to play through the whole thing on my own terms without needing to worry about making notes for these closing remarks. That's maybe a bit selfish, but I've played through enough of the stories to be able to offer some insight into how the systems work, and hopefully that will be enough to help anyone listening decide whether or not they fancy delving into this large, odd, and quite expensive tome. While the Dread story I did out loud works well enough, it's not the strongest of the ones I played through. I did a couple of the Slognet games and found, perhaps unsurprisingly, that they felt like a better fit than the future Lawman. Slonya is a barbarian character, motivated as much by glory and a lust for battle as by any external motivation. Between that and the fantasy trappings, he feels like he slots into the gaming space much more easily than Old Stoneface. He just hews much closer to the sort of character that tends to be the protagonist in an adventure game book. Before we get into the systems and the specifics of the design, it's worth noting that I found the short, sharp blasts of action quite appealing. All of the stories here are short, they have a fairly simple design, but they pack a lot of events into their pages. I was oppressed by how much stuff Pat Mills and company managed to cram into less than 100 panels. Comics are a compressed form of storytelling at the best of times, and the house style of 2000 AD compresses the action even further. There's probably not a denser comic currently on the market with the need to tell stories, sometimes complete stories, in as few as four pages. Writing a four-page comic script that tells a complete story is a real challenge. I've unsuccessfully submitted a couple of scripts to 2000 AD, and 
compressing a whole narrative into that kind of space is hard. It's fun from a writing perspective, but it's hard, which is probably why so few people are actually good at it. That means there's no fat anywhere in these stories. They're lean and tightly focused on action, action, action. There's barely a wasted panel anywhere in the games I played, and that's something to be celebrated. I also found that I enjoyed playing something that was short but dense. Despite being unemployable by this phase in my life, I still have plenty of things fighting for my limited time, and having a complete experience that only takes about half an hour is a surprisingly rare thing. Video games typically take weeks to finish and are increasingly designed never to be truly finished. Box set culture has turned TV shows into an endurance test, and we regularly see blockbuster movies that push towards a three-hour running time. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, but just as I like playing little indie video games between the epics, so too it's nice to read a game book that explores a simple idea in a very boundaried space. And I think it's fantastic that game books as an art form can support a diverse range of approaches. In terms of the functional design, there are necessarily limits to what you can do in this format. You're not going to be making a huge number of decisions, and the systems that support those decisions will need to be basic. The decisions in Dice Man are generally simple, but they do enough to create the illusion of agency, and as I tirelessly repeat, that illusion is the most important thing in gamebook design. There's times when you want to do things in a specific order for best results, and there's an item or two to find in most stories that will become important by the end. It's a whistle-stop tour around the fundamentals of gamebook design, but it doesn't fumble the ball at any point. There's also one story where you have to make a choice in every single panel, and boy, do I have some thoughts about that. Part of what makes this work, for me, is the quality of the artwork. You've got top-tier British artists working on this project, including the late-lamented Kevin O'Neill, one of the all-time greats, and other talents, including Brian Talbot, Steve Dillon, David Pugh, Mike Collins, John Ridgway, and even cartoonist Hunt Emerson. Art is always subjective, but getting to play game books illustrated by this calibre of professional is one of the biggest selling points of this collection. Just as a piece of art, it's a wonderful thing. And as a brief aside, one of the things that's great about comics, as stated by Alan Moore, is that it puts art, real art, into the hands of the people at an affordable price. One of my favourite artists is Hokusai, the Japanese printmaker, and one of the things I love about prints is that there is really no original piece. If you have a Hokusai print, it is theoretically only as valuable as every other Hokusai print in circulation. And if you were to create new prints from the original blocks and colour them in the traditional manner, you could argue that you don't have a reproduction at all, but a brand new original. The same thing can be said of comic art. The comic is the final intended form of the art, and if you own a comic, then you own, in a sense, an original piece of art. You can also say the same thing about game books. The best game books have amazing art, and it's cool to see a game book project where the art is absolutely front and centre. In terms of the systems, you can see a development even over the short life of the Diceman project. The Dread system is simple enough, and as I said in my recording, I think you could probably build quite a fun book just from that mechanic, since it cuts through 
role-playing combat systems to their absolute core. You fight, and if you don't die, you continue your adventure with slightly less health than you started with before. It's not a million miles away from the approach I took with my game Dungeon and Daggers, where I tried to boil as much action as possible down to the role of a six-sided die. The idea of turning all fights into a single round of combat is one that is appealing to me, and I think it's well suited to the frenetic style of the comics. Several of the other stories, including the Slaunia ones, use a slightly different system. In these, you have one stat, which I'll refer to as power, and you fight monsters by rolling 2d6 for each combatant, with the winner knocking d6 power off the loser. This time, fights continue until one fighter runs out of power. Sensibly, Pat Mills opts to give the player a slight advantage by having them add one to their total, making the fights less of a coin flip. Uh, one of my personal bugbears in game design is when fights boil down to a lengthy series of 50 50 rolls. The bit that I really like, though, is that after you've defeated your opponent, you get to add their starting power to your own total. You've effectively got healing and leveling up all combined into a single mechanic. It's incredibly clean and elegant, and it feels like a system you could bolt a reasonable amount of mechanical depth onto if you were to iterate on it a little bit. The titular Diceman stories present another approach. This time you're given two stats, physical power and mental power, and you roll 1d6 to generate special magical ability. In these Lovecraftian horror private eye stories, there's less of a focus on combat, and the approach taken fits a lot better with that kind of story. I'm very impressed with the way Mills has kept systems under control throughout these stories. There's a mentality of only doing what's going to fit and ditching anything that carries extra baggage. It's something I wish that fighting fantasy was better at on occasion, although having the same core system and taping undercooked new mechanics to the side is to an extent part of the charm. Diceman is certainly a great example of one of my personal design goals, which is to always strive to do the most you can with the least number of moving parts. It's not something I always succeed at, but I do think Diceman is a worthwhile case study into tailoring your approach to the story you want to tell. The story that's really mechanically interesting to me is the Nemesis the Warlock one. This casts the player as the alien warlock who fights a ceaseless battle with the corrupt and demented Torquemada, a quasi-religious dictator who rules over a surreal future Earth with an iron fist. The story is incredibly simple. You are tasked with rescuing one of your agents from Torquemada's dungeons, but the twist is that the entire adventure takes place within the labyrinthine tunnels that lead to Torquemada's lair, and you aren't running down those tunnels, you're piloting your Blitzspear, a dagger-shaped spaceship capable of travelling at ferocious speed. You're dodging through the traffic, you're dodging Torquemada's murderous terminators and plenty of other obstacles along the way. What makes this one amazing to me is that you can control your speed. You start off at a sedate 30 miles per hour, but each and every panel allows you to adjust your speed by 10 miles per hour in either direction. You can speed up, you can slow down. This is absolutely brilliant. One of the most amazing mechanics I've ever seen. You have an incentive to go fast because that makes your ship harder to hit, but pour on too much speed 
and you won't be able to hit the various enemies that swarm through the tunnels, and you'll struggle to avoid the various obstacles strewn through your path. This incredibly simple mechanic creates a fascinating challenge, and it means that you're constantly making decisions and trying to read the situation so that you take advantage of your ship's speed. There's a constant tension between the desire to go fast and the desire to be able to react to threats. It's genius. And because you can change your speed every single panel, bar a couple of story panels towards the end of the uh, narrative, you are making approximately 90 decisions minimum over the course of a 96-panel comic. That is an insane density of decision-making in such a small space. And this is what great mechanics do. They systematise and abstract something that catches the feel of the thing they're trying to simulate and make it central to the play experience. I think my favourite mechanics are the ones that pick one element from the wider world and then make that element stand in for a whole bunch of other stuff. Speed here covers not just your velocity, but also elements of your piloting skill that you could easily choose to simulate on top. But somehow being able to control your speed manages to convey all of this other baggage without needing to get bogged down in detail. There's a simple lesson here. When you're writing video games, you only need to simulate a few things to create a vivid sense of immersion. The problem is that picking the exact right thing and simulating it in exactly the right way is incredibly difficult. Pat Mills has hit on something marvellous in this story. Real lightning-in-a-bottle stuff. And you can compare it with the fighting fantasy book Freeway Fighter, which has car combat built in, which is fun, but which never gives you the feeling that you're in a car. It doesn't have the essential carness of something like Mad Max or Death Race 2000. From a mechanical point of view, Nemesis the Warlock was the best of the stories I played. From a narrative point of view, it doesn't land quite as well as some of the others. It's that age-old tension between paying attention to systems and paying attention to stories. Systems, even brilliant systems, have a way of constraining stories. If your system is a hammer, you'll end up meeting a lot of nails. That's just the way of it. In much the same way that superheroes with very specific powers have a tendency to run into a lot of supervillains with weirdly similar powers to theirs. If your superhero's power is that they can run really fast, having them tangle with the amazing Slugman just doesn't feel like a good fit. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why I think story is overrated in a lot of video games. You can write as much dialogue as you like, but if the only thing you've simulated is combat, then all of those dialogue choices are going to lead inevitably to combat. Choices in most video games, even more than choices in tabletop RPGs and game books, are choices about which systems or which bits of the system you are going to engage with. The last story we really need to look at is the final one in this collection. 2000 AD has always had a satirical bent, but this story, Ronald Reagan in Twilight's Last Gleaming, is an anarchic hand grenade of a tale, which puts you in the shoes of former US President Ronald Reagan, one of the key architects of the modern world in which we live. I was born at the end of the 70s, so I don't really remember either 
Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, but I am very much a product of their malign influence on the Western world. Although I wasn't paying attention to politics through the Thatcher-Reagan years, I was paying attention to things like He-Man and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but they were still kind of targets of satire when I was first getting into comedy as a kid, and some of the older satire was still kind of doing the rounds. Political satire is effectively dead at this point. George W. Bush, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have killed it. We've reached a point where exaggeration for comedic effect is nearly impossible. The zeitgeist of perpetual insanity that can frequently top even the most wild flights of fantasy. So, Twilight's last gleaming feels like the product of an earlier, more innocent age when we still expected the world to make a modicum of sense. You have three stats in this adventure, your popularity, global tension, and sanity. The game presents you with a number of situations ripped from the headlines and asks you to navigate a path that will keep you in power but prevent the world from being destroyed in nuclear war. Some of the choices you make are very silly indeed, but there's a neat twist in the story. If you make too many sensible choices, your sanity score will climb and the Secret Service will arrest you on the basis that you can't be the real Ronald Reagan. Your goal isn't to get your sanity up, it's to keep it appropriately low. Of course, getting your insanity down isn't really compatible with preventing nuclear war, and therein lies the challenge of the story. It's brutally difficult to behave appropriately insane and not burn the world to a crisp. It's a ferocious satire, even if it does seem a bit quaint in a world where being an obvious liar, charlatan or maniac is no barrier to a successful career in politics. The artwork here is very different from the house style as well. Hunt Emerson delivers boisterous panels crammed with anarchic excess that looks more like something from the pages of the Beano than something from a science fiction comic. I think it would have been both shocking and very familiar to the intended audience, which was, let's not forget, children and young adults. And what young person doesn't want to play a game book which reminds them of the looming spectre of nuclear Armageddon, something that's emblematic of the 1980s, but becoming increasingly current. There's a few issues with the design of this story. There's so much going on that it doesn't actually quite fit into the slender page count. So you get a page just filled with words in order to make the game book actually function. But that's kind of also a testament to how ambitious Pat Mills was with this story. When I look at Dice Man as a whole, I'm genuinely delighted by it. It doesn't entirely make the case that comic game books work, but if you're going to go down that road, I can't imagine it coming off any better than this. The book isn't cheap, and if you're not a fan of 2000 AD, the appeal is going to be more limited. But there's some surprisingly good design gone into these stories. Better design than in some of the published game books I've played. I'm certainly looking forward to playing through the ones I haven't covered for the podcast, and there are some mechanics in there that I genuinely love. The writing is strong, the artwork varies from solid to fantastic. What could have been little more than an amusing historical curiosity turns out to be, for me at least, a hidden gem. And there's no feeling I appreciate more than coming across something obscure and also wonderful.
Well, that's all for this episode. I'll be back at the end of the month with the next entry in the Fighting Fantasy series, which will be Fangs of Fury, written by one Luke Sharp, a name that arouses more trepidation than optimism in your humble podcaster. You can get in touch with me in the meantime by emailing hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. Keep an eye out for my new podcast. That should be coming very soon. Thanks for listening. Take care. And I'll see you soon.